0: Welcome to Come Follow Me With Free, episode 36, Covenant Keepers. Again, thank you so much for sharing this week. I love looking at my numbers and especially my favorite part. I think maybe I've said this before, but one of my favorite metrics to look at is those of you who are listening in other countries other than the United States. And so just know, all of you who are in other countries, I love looking at one of you in New Zealand and in Germany and you know all all the places around the world. So I just I see each of your listens and that's just so fun to me and I I always get the chills kind of even though I know that each impact in the United States is also important but it's fun for me to see my map fill up and feel like that you know me doing this and other people doing this and the internet doing it it's just filling the world with the gospel and I just love it so much. So I especially love it when you in other countries share it because it's just so fun for me to watch my map. All right, this week we are going to start by giving a little bit of context for these sections that I'm going to focus on. And as usual, my primary topic eventually is going to zero in on just a few verses. But it's good to understand what's going on in these sections especially because these particular sections are not super heavy like some of the previous sections have been in doctrine. It's a lot of short revelations that are clearly very related to exactly what's going on and less doctrinally focused. So in section 51, Edward Partridge, who, if you remember, is the the church's first bishop, is directed by the Lord on how to help the Colesville Saints get settled. And Lehman Copeland has offered to allow the Coldville Saints to live on his land together, living the law of consecration. Now, I just want to give you a brief history about Lehman Copeland. His story is really interesting. And most of this information comes from an article on the church website called Lehman Copley and the Shakers by Matthew McBride. So Lehman was previously a half-hearted shaker. He lived about 35 miles from the shaker settlement and also remain married, which isn't considered living entirely in alignment with the beliefs of the Shakers, as they believed that celibacy was, as they would call it, taking up the cross. It was the highest way of living. And so that kind of shows you, rather than living with them and practicing celibacy, he chose to be farther away. But he likely still attended their meetings and maintained a relationship with the congregation but he was reprimanded for not fully embracing the doctrine of the Shakers. There are lots of similarities in the doctrine of the restored gospel and in the Shakers. Both of the doctrines shared a belief in general apostasy and modern prophecy, the agency of man, the idea of a communal life. But as we talked last week, there were certainly some important differences, other than, of course, the fact that the church is actually directed and restored by jesus christ but doctrinally the shakers didn't believe that baptism was essential for salvation they they believed that jesus christ had already come in the form of a woman who was an early shaker leader they believed in vegetarianism and they believed as i said before that celibacy was the most desirable way of life and last week we studied in section 49 that revelation given to Copley, which spoke to the doctrine of the shakers and its inaccuracies And in that revelation, Copley was called to go on a mission with Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt to the Shakers to preach the gospel. It is thought that perhaps some of his interest and enthusiasm in going on this mission to the Shakers was not entirely pure. It may have been appealing to him because he would get to call those who had previously rebuked him to repentance, So in a way, I can imagine that it was a way to show them that he had found something of substance and what he believed to be accurate, perhaps maybe to kind of rub it in their noses. They were well-received. Upon their arrival by the Shakers and their leader, whose name was Kitchell, they spend the evening of their arrival debating the doctrine of each religion and I'm sure each feeling vindicated in their own point of view. And in the morning, Kitchell proposes that neither side should force their doctrine on the other at this time. So Signe Rigdon had previously planned to read the Revelation section 49 to the Shakers at their Sabbath service, but because of Kitchell's request, he decided to hold back. But just before the meeting started, Parley P. Pratt arrived on horseback, and he was unhappy with the decision to be submissive and said, quote, "Pay no attention to him, for they had come with the authority of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the people must hear it." So, as the meeting was concluding, Sidney Rigdon quote, arose and stated that he had a message from the Lord Jesus Christ to this people, and could he have the privilege of delivering it? The leader Kitchell gave permission. And Sidney Rigdon read section 49, which disputed, of course, some of their core beliefs and doctrine. Kitchell calmly responded that he did not accept the message and, quote, would release them and their Christ from any further burden about us and take all responsibility on myself. Now, really quickly, I think Kitchell, throughout this entire exchange, Considering he didn't believe in the restored gospel, I kind of think that his responses and his willingness to allow the missionaries to read to his congregation was pretty admirable. He clearly was a very measured man. So after that, Rigdon replied, This you cannot do. I wish to hear the people speak. And then Kitchell allowed others present to speak their minds, and they said that they were fully satisfied with what they had. So Rigdon accepted this and decided that their mission had been unfruitful. But Parley P. Pratt did not. He clearly had a lot of a lot of passion for the Lord and for the gospel, which we can understand. So Kitchell accounted that he arose and shook the dust off from his coattail as a testimony against us that we had rejected the word of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he was following Jesus's injunction to his disciples in the gospel. So at this point, Kitchell was getting more upset. And the shaker leader then denounced Pratt in the foresight of his congregation. He said, quote, You filthy beast, dare you presume to come in here and try and imitate a man of God by shaking your filthy tail. Confess your sins and purge your soul from your last and your other abominations before you ever presume to do the like again. Kitchell then turned to Copley, who had begun to cry, and gave him this harsh rebuke. He said, You hypocrite, you knew better. You knew where the living work of God was, but for the sake of indulgence, you could consent to deceive yourself. So obviously, Kitchell believed that Copley had taken the easier path doctrinally by joining the Mormons. After this confrontation, Parley P. Pratt mounted his horse and returned to Kirtland. Sidney Rigdon stayed for dinner before returning and left a copy of the revelation with Kitchell. And Copley remained for the night and went to his farm the next day, and he was undoubtedly depressed that his hopes for converting some of his former brethren were dashed. And after this point, it's clear that this encounter shook Copley's testimony. It's interesting to me to think about the differences in reaction of Parley P. Pratt and Sidney Rigdon. And I like Sidney Rigdon's approach, where it seems like, as though he's he's pretty peaceful the whole time. He's intent on sharing the gospel, but in a peaceful way. It seems like in a, in a more Christ-like way. And he's still, after that heated confrontation, he's still able to stay for dinner. And then he left a copy of the Re- Revelation with Kitchell, even though he knew Kitchell probably didn't want it. So after this encounter, when Copley returned to his farm that the Colesville Saints were living on, he backed out of his agreement to allow them to live on his land. And kind of left them high and dry. So the Colesville Saints, this group is such an inspiring group. They are pretty much the first branch of the church before they were even called branches. And the Knight family, throughout the history of the church, throughout Joseph's life, was a huge supporter of him during his times of trial and during the times of trial of the church. This community pulled together in Colesville and they moved together to Ohio And when they got there, they were prepared to attempt to live fully the law of consecration on Lehman Copley's land. A couple sections ago, their leader, Newell Knight, had been called to go on a mission. But with this new development of them getting kicked off of Copley's land and them being called to move to Missouri... He was released from that call to go on a mission, and he was commanded to remain with the Colville Saints as they prepared to embark on their journey. And they were the very first saints commanded to leave Ohio and go to Missouri. All right, so that brings us to what I would like to talk about today. The Lord says some pretty serious stuff about Lehman Copley's covenant being broken, which can most certainly be applied to us as we make our own covenants today. I'm going to read to you sections 54 verses four through six. And as the covenant, which they have made unto me has been broken. Even so it has become void and of none effect and woe to him by whom this offense cometh for it hath been better for him that he had been drowned in the depths of the sea, but blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment for they shall obtain mercy. Now, it's always fun when we read something like this in the scriptures, and it sounds so harsh, and woe to him by whom this offense cometh, for it hath been better for him that he had been drowned in the depths of the sea. Sheesh, That sentence. But I want to talk about why that would be true, and why this is a merciful point of view. That rhymed. <laughs> President Nelson tells us in his talk called Covenants quote, One of the most important concepts of revealed religion is that of a sacred covenant. In legal language, a covenant generally denotes an agreement between two or more parties. But in a more religious context, a covenant is much more significant. It is a sacred promise with God, He fixes the terms. Each person may choose to accept those terms. If one accepts the terms of the covenant and obeys God's law, he or she receives the blessings associated with the covenant. We know that when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. All right, so now let's always remember, before we go any further, let's remember the atonement. Every week of pretty much my entire life, when I take the the sacrament. I renew my covenant to always remember him. Do I always perfectly do that? No. I am a fallible human being. But am I doomed forever because I failed? Would it be better that I be drowned in the depths of the sea? Because every week, at some point during my week, usually more than once, I fail to remember him, which I covenant to do every week. And why does that work? Because I repent. And we all can continually repent as we get better at keeping those covenants more perfectly. As long as my trajectory in life continues to aim upward and continues to be a sincere process of repentance and renewed dedication and a true effort, Heavenly Father knows if we're really trying. The cleansing power of the atonement will be continually applied. Covenant keeping is not instant perfection. In this mortal life, covenant keeping is paired with continual repentance and mercy. Okay. So for a little bit, now that we've got that, we were remembering the atonement. We're remembering that we can repent from our imperfections. I am going to focus a little bit on some grim realities that these scriptures point out. And I said this last night on Instagram. Sometimes I fear that we shy away from being blunt about those subjects because we don't want to discourage anyone. Which is why I started by reminding us about the relationship between covenant keeping and the atonement of Jesus Christ. But I think it is also important for us to take note of the brutal bluntness used by the Lord and his prophets in the scriptures sometimes. As Nephi said, My soul delighteth in plainness unto my people. There is no doubt that the Lord is brutally plain to us, not to be mean, but to ensure that everything is perfectly clear. I have recently heard people talking where it was clear that they had some doctrines mixed up, not because of any ill intentions, but I think it's because sometimes we focus so much on the mercy side of things that sometimes people forget that there is also justice, that there is also right and wrong very firmly explained to us. That we cannot willingly and knowingly disobey the commandments of God without repentance or remorse and still be okay. It's just not true. All right, so let's jump into this. Why is that true? What is worse, spiritual death or physical death? That question makes me think of the book of mormon sometimes i think that the lord destroys a people if they don't repent not just as an act of justice but also as an act of mercy to save them from further accountability and also to be a perfect god that fulfills all his promises and that includes enforcing the consequence of sin in mormon chapter 5 verse 2 mormon speaks after he has agreed once again to command the wicked nephi army he says But behold, I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of the Lord which should come upon them, for they repented not of their iniquities, but did struggle for their lives without calling upon that being who created them. We are told over and over again that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And when people reject that salvation so willingly offered to them, there comes a time that the Lord knows that there will be no return. As Mormon describes, when he said, "And I saw the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually, for I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land." He says that the strength of the Lord was not with them. I see two things in the great and terrible end of the Book of Mormon. I see a just and perfect God. Unable and unwilling, because of the promises he has made, to support a people who are in open rebellion. As Mormon said, the strength of the Lord was not with us, yea, we were left to ourselves, that the Spirit of the Lord did not abide in us. Therefore, we had become weak like unto our brethren. But I also see mercy, mercy in allowing this people to die, mercy in their deaths so that they couldn't do any more damage to themselves and future generations. Why were the Lamanites spared? Why were the Nephites destroyed and the Lamanites spared? I think it comes all down to accountability. The Lamanites were clearly incredibly wicked, just like the Nephites. But was their wickedness at the same level of accountability without a knowledge of the gospel? No. With knowledge comes accountability. And the Nephites had been taught by their fathers. Mormon had been pleading with them to repent. They knew. But the Lamanites, they no longer had the gospel with them. So there was less accountability. So the Lord, in his great mercy and justice, fulfilled his promise that they would be swept off the land if they did not keep the commandments. So I bring this back to what we're reading in Doctrine and Covenants 54, verse 5. And woe to him by whom this offense cometh, for it hath been better for him that he hath been drowned in the depths of the sea. When a covenant is made broken and left unrepented for, it would have been better that he or she had been drowned in the depths of the sea rather than break that covenant. Because just as with the Nephites, with knowledge and covenants comes accountability. I'm reminded of Alma's powerful sermon on this subject, which sums up why. Alma, chapter 15, verse 14. For our words will condemn us, yea, all our works will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state, we shall not dare to look upon our God. And we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us and hide us from his presence. But this cannot be, for we must come forth and stand before him in his glory, and in his power, and in his might, majesty, and dominion, and acknowledge our everlasting shame, that all his judgments are just, that he is just in all his works, and that he is merciful unto the children of men, and that he has all power to save every man that believeth on his name, and bringeth forth fruit, meat for repentance. And now behold, I say unto you, then cometh a death, even a second death, which is a spiritual death. Then is a time that whosoever dieth in his sins as to a temporal death, shall also die a spiritual death, yea, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. Then is the time when their torment shall be as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. And then is the time that they shall be chained down to an everlasting destruction, according to the power and captivity of Satan, he having subjected them according to his will. Then I say unto you, they shall be as though there had been no redemption made, For they cannot be redeemed according to God's justice, and they cannot die seeing there is no more corruption. The covenants we make with God are serious. And it is because of his love for us that he speaks in plainness here. We must not be guilty of the sin of levity. Do not treat them lightly. When you make a covenant to remember the Lord always, make every effort to do that. And when you don't, repent. Keep getting better. When you make a covenant to your spouse to be faithful, make every effort to do that. And if you mess up in your actions or your thoughts, no matter the state of your marriage, don't justify. Repent and keep getting better. When you make a covenant at baptism to keep the commandments, make every effort to do so at the spiritual maturity level that you are at and repent when you mess up. See a pattern? Do your best and repent. Do your best and repent. The next verse in section 51 says, But blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment, for they shall obtain mercy. That goes perfectly with what we just talked about. We get mercy. We get continual forgiveness. When the Lord sees our effort, when he sees us progressing, when he sees us doing our best, we get continual mercy for those mess-ups, for our imperfection. I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. As long as our trajectory in life continues to aim upward, continues to be a sincere process of repentance and renewed dedication and true effort, the cleansing power of the atonement will be continually applied. Covenant-keeping is not instant perfection. In this mortal life, covenant-keeping is inseparably paired with continual repentance and mercy. I want to end with M. Russell Ballard's talk called Keeping Covenants. He says, The battle for your souls is increasingly fierce. The adversary is strong and cunning. However, you have within your physical body the powerful spirit of a son or daughter of God, because He loves you and wants you to come home to Him. Our Father in Heaven has given you a conscience that tells your spirit when you are keeping the Lord's commandments and when you are not. If you will pay more attention to your spiritual self, which is eternal, than your mortal self, which is temporary, you can always resist the temptations of Satan and conquer his efforts to take you into his power. You must be honest with yourself and remain true to the covenants you have made with God. Do not fall into the trap of thinking you can sin a little and it will not matter. Remember, The Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Sin is sin. Sin weakens you spiritually and it always places the sinner at eternal risk. Choosing to sin, even with the intent to repent, is simply turning away from God and violating covenants. For those who have strayed, the Savior has provided a way back, but it is not without pain. Repentance is not easy. It takes time, painful time. You deceive yourself if you believe you can break the promises you have made with Heavenly Father and suffer no consequence. These words from M. Russell Ballard are beautifully plain. And clearly, just as the Lord finds value in instilling us a surety of His love for us, a security of His plan, and the peace that we can attain, He also finds value in instilling in us the consequences of sin. So that there can be no mistaking his words or the consequences of handling our covenants with lightness. Now, we have addressed covenants with seriousness today. But I hope you don't feel discouraged. I want to remind you how amazing they are. President Nelson reminds us of the incredible covenant made to the House of Israel in the Book of Mormon. He says, I quote from an early Book of Mormon prophecy. Our Father hath not spoken of our seed alone, but also of the house of Israel, pointing to the covenant which should be fulfilled in the latter days, which covenant the Lord made to our father Abraham. Isn't that amazing? Some 600 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, prophets knew that the Abrahamic covenant would be finally fulfilled only in the latter days. To facilitate that promise, the Lord appeared in these latter days to renew the Abrahamic covenant. To the prophet Joseph Smith, The Master declared, Abraham received promises concerning his seed and of the fruit of his loins, from whose loins you are, my servant Joseph. This promise is yours also, because ye are of Abraham. With this renewal we have received, as did they of old, the holy priesthood and the everlasting gospel. We have the right to receive the fullness of the gospel, enjoy the blessings of the priesthood, and qualify for God's greatest blessing, that of eternal life. President Nelson continues, Brethren of the covenant have the right to qualify for the oath and covenant of the priesthood. If you are faithful to obtaining these two priesthoods and magnifying your calling, you are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of your bodies. That is not all. Men who worthily receive the priesthood receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who receive the Lord receive God the Father, and those who receive the Father receive all that He has. Incredible blessings flow from the oath and covenant to worthy men, women, and children in all the world. The Book of Mormon is a tangible sign that the Lord has commenced to gather his children of covenant Israel. This book, written for our day, states as one of its purposes, that ye may know that the covenant which the Father hath made with the children of Israel is already beginning to be fulfilled. For behold, the Lord will remember his covenant which he hath made unto his people of the house of Israel. Indeed the Lord has not forgotten. He has blessed us and others throughout the world with the Book of Mormon. One of its purposes is for the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It helps us make the covenants with God. It invites us to remember Him and to know His beloved Son. It is another testament of Jesus Christ. When we realize that we are the children of the covenant, we know who we are and what God expects of us. His law is written in our hearts. He is our God and we are His people. Committed children of the covenant remain steadfast, even in the midst of adversity. When that doctrine is deeply implanted in our hearts, even the sting of death is soothed and our spiritual stamina is strengthened. The greatest compliment that can be earned here in this life is to be known as a covenant keeper. The rewards for a covenant keeper will be realized both here and hereafter. Scripture declares that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven and dwell with god in a state of never-ending happiness." Close quote. When we were sent here to earth i am sure that each and every one of us was determined that we would be covenant keepers that we were filled with a fire to obey his command and be strong and true and be an instrument in his hand he has given us the opportunity to be everything we can be our covenants are not to contain us in a cage. They are to help us gain the opportunity of eternal life. Within the covenants, we make are blessings, protection, and strength, and especially now. I know I already said this. I was going to end with M. Russell Ballard, but now I'm really going to end. I want to end with words from Neil L. Anderson. As evil increases in the world, there is a compensatory spiritual power for the righteous. As the world slides from its spiritual moorings, the Lord prepares a way for those who seek him, offering them greater assurance, greater confirmation, greater confidence in the spiritual direction they are traveling. The gift of the Holy Ghost becomes a brighter light in the emerging twilight. I pray that your faith in him will always be an anchor to your souls. I give you my sure witness that Jesus is the Christ. He is resurrected. He lives and he guides his holy work upon the earth. As you look to the Lord Jesus Christ in all you do, May your faithfulness, I pray, bless those you love as they also seek to follow the Savior and follow in your path. I promise you that as you embrace the spiritual gifts prepared for the righteous, He will steady you, strengthen you, shape you, and secure you. You will be His. And with that, I want to leave you with my testimony that I know that we can be covenant keepers, that we have not been left alone. It is not impossible ask for help, ask for guidance, ask for strength, and those gifts will be given to you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.